Howdy. Good to see you guys this morning. You doing okay today? Yeah? Good, good. I'm Josh. I'm one of the ministers. Welcome to Clear Creek. If this is your first time, welcome. Glad you're here. If you're part of the family, been here for a while, again, so good to see you. And for our friends joining us online, welcome as well. We are in part six of our seven signs of Jesus, looking at seven moments where Jesus radically transformed lives and gave us a picture of who he is. So if you have your Bible, we're going to dive in here in just a moment to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Uh, if you're new to church, if you're new to the scriptures, let me just tell you where that's at. Uh, the Bible is divided into two sections. You have the Old Testament and then you have what? Yeah, the New Testament. The New Testament begins with four books called the Gospels. They are about the life of Jesus. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's where we'll be this morning, John chapter 9. So let's go. We're going to dive right into the text. And here's the setup to it. We've been looking at the seven signs. And that word sign is a really important word in John's vocabulary. See, everywhere else in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic Gospels because they are similar. Whenever Jesus performs a miracle in the synoptic gospels, they use the word for miracle because it's about power. It's the word dunamis. Everyone say dunamis. That was pathetic. Let's try this again. Dunamis. There we go. Dunamis means power. It's where we get our word dynamite. And so there's this idea that the miracles point to the power of God. But John does not use the word dunamis. He uses the word simeon which is the word we translate to sign because he wants people to know, yes, there is power in Jesus, but the signs, the miracles are not in and of themselves the point. Rather, like any sign does, it points to a point. And so we've been seeing the point of who Jesus is. We've seen that Jesus can do great things even when things run out with the water turning to wine. We've seen Jesus who came on the scene and he brought healing to a man who'd given up hope. Anyone in here knows someone without hope? Jesus can bring hope. We see Jesus coming on the scene when people are hungry and he feeds. He does something that is impossible, but he is the God who gives manna in the wilderness of life. He's also the God who calms the storms. He's the God who shows up in all these places. And today we're going to look at a very familiar but powerful story. And I got to be honest with you, I have like five different sermons in this one text. So I hope you're ready for a two hour message. It's going to be great. No, don't worry. We'll have you out by at least next Tuesday. It's going to be good. I've had a really cut. There's a lot that I'm not going to be able to share this morning. In fact, we're going to come back to this text because there is so much in here. But I want us to skim over the surface and hit a few points to show you the signs specifically. And so I want to take you now to John chapter 9. And this is a story. That is both literal and it's also symbolic for everyone in this room. And so if you will, let's stand and let's read this text together. Beginning in verse 1, we're going to read the the first 12 verses and then we'll jump to verse 35. Beginning in verse 1, it says, As he, this is Jesus, as he went along, he saw a man born blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Are you seeing a pattern between darkness and light, even in what Jesus is saying here? Having said this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. 
Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word meant sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some of them claimed he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? They demanded. He replied, the man they call Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. Now jump down with me to verse 35. It says this. Jesus had heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Now, by the way, just as an aside, that's the phrase Jesus uses to describe himself. It's an Old Testament allusion, an Old Testament title. We don't have time to get into it today, but that's all he's saying. Do you believe in me? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Now, notice this. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. This is God's word for us. Let's pray. Father, would you give us eyes to see this morning? What a terrible thing it is to be born able to see the physical world, yet blind to things that are spiritual. And I pray that you'll give me eyes to see. You'll give my brothers and my sisters and my friends eyes to see what you want us to see in this text. So we may, too, worship you. We pray this in the name of the one who gives sight to blind eyes, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. All right, let's just kind of walk through this. Little, little sense of the moment. So Jesus and his followers are walking along and they come to this place and the disciples see this man and this man is sitting on the side of the road. He's begging because he's blind. Now this raises a philosophical issue for the disciples. This is a moment for theological conversation and debate, at least it is in their minds. Because they see this man who is born blind and they want to know the question and the answer to the question, Why? Why is this man the way he is? What happened to get him to this place? What caused this problem? And so they asked Jesus, Jesus, who has sinned? Was it this man? By the way, he's sitting right there. By the way, isn't it interesting? Sometimes we can be more interested in the problem than the person. Isn't it interesting that sometimes we can talk about people, but we don't talk to them? I wonder what our world would look like. I wonder even what the church would look like if every conversation was to the person and not about the person. But we won't meddle today. We won't talk about gossip. They say, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? Now, they were simply reiterating a view that was common of the day. The belief was that one because of their sin would inherit punishment or because of the sin of their parents would inherit punishment the sin and the punishment of that sin in themselves as well. And so they're asking, is he a bad guy or did he have bad parents? Now, the problem is he was born blind, so they've got to kind of go, well, maybe it wasn't just him, maybe it was just his parents. And sometimes we see this, don't we? We all know of situations where parents make bad decisions and their children are the ones who experience the fallout, aren't they? 
And it's true that there are multiple reasons for why the world is busted up. In fact, if you're here this morning, let me just give you a few reasons. And I say this not as a means of casting blame, but rather to help us understand the complexity of our world and what we are in. So there's a few reasons why the world may be busted up. There's actually four if you want to write these down. Number one, the number one cause of suffering is simply sin. And I know this is a word that we hear so often, we often ignore the reality and the profundity of sin. Sin is not simply something that we have done, but rather it is now the cause of everything that's broken. Sin has entered in, it seeped into the very cracks of creation, and it has broken everything down to the molecular level. It's almost like when you rebel against God, that's what sin is, when we rebel against God, We have invited something foreign into creation and it breaks things. It'd be like putting peanut butter in your car's gas tank. It gets in, it seeps everywhere, and it breaks it because it was never intended to be there. And so sin has now entered in. And so we have children with disabilities. We have disease. We have famine. We have a world that is broken because sin has entered in. That's the number one cause of suffering. But number two is self. Yes, sin in general, but self. Isn't it true that sometimes the biggest problems we face are problems that we've created ourselves? Maybe you're not this way, but for me, my biggest moments of pain in life are almost always ones that I've personally caused. So we cause suffering. Third one is others. Yes, there are people who do things that cause problems. So my friend Thaddeus, he was born with fetal alcohol syndrome, not because of what he did, but because of what was done to him by his parents. Or the drunk driver crosses the double yellow line and wrecks someone else's life. Is that possible? Absolutely. And then number four is demons and de- demonic activity. Now listen, listen, listen. I know, I know. We are far too mature. We are far too sophisticated as humans in a Western enlightened society to believe in such myths as the devil and demons, right? Do you not understand How proud and yet ignorant a denial of the supernatural is? Do you understand that that is an incredibly modern view held by a very small group of people throughout world history? In fact, did you know when people say, well, there's all we can see is all that there is around us. It's just the things that we can taste, touch, feel, the things we can measure. That's all that is real. Do you understand even scientists don't agree with that? Scientists have discovered at least 10 different dimensions. And did you realize that of the miracles Jesus performed, seven of them, at least seven, are Jesus liberating someone from demonic oppression? In other words, you have to deny modern science to say all that there is is what we can see, taste, touch, and feel, and you have to deny the very work of Jesus Christ. We believe the devil is real, demons are real, and they cause suffering in this world. Absolutely. And so they want to know, who's to blame? Is it this guy's, his parents' fault? Who brought the problem among them? And ultimately, they just want to know who's to blame. They just want to know... If we can figure it out, then we can blame the right person as if finding the right person to blame will fix the problem. Did you realize we spend a whole lot of time in our world and in our personal lives just trying to find who's to blame? Have you noticed that? Let's do it this way. Just raise your hand if you have children. How much of parenting is simply listening to who's to blame? Holy cow, our house would be quiet if that was not the conversation piece. It's always, oh, she did this or he did that, as if hearing who's to blame automatically fixes the problem. But it doesn't, does it? 
And yet we spend so much time, well, it's my mama's fault. The reason I'm the way I am is because she didn't love me enough. She didn't hug me enough. She didn't rock me enough. It's my mama's fault. Or it's my daddy's fault. The reason I am the way I am is because of my daddy. Or it's because of my spouse. It's because of my wife. It's because of my husband. If they supported me more, if they loved me more, then I would be a well-adjusted member of society. That's the reason I am who I am. Or then we go, no, it's, it's the neighbor. It's our politics. And so then we get into the big level. It's the Republicans blaming Democrats and Democrats blaming the Republicans. Friend, do you understand that the art of Washington is not to get anything done? It's simply don't be the one blamed for what went wrong. It's all about blame, isn't it? Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And by the way, I got to say, it is more fun to do what the apostles are doing here, isn't it? It is more fun to play the blame game. I prefer that every day of the week to be able to look at someone and say, your fault. Yep, you did it. You messed up. You did a dumb thing. Made your bed. Lie in it. I'm going to wash my hands of you. I'm not responsible. It is so much easier to say, you're getting what you deserve. Now, pause right there. I'm going to walk over here and let's just talk for a moment. And let me remind you and remind me, isn't it good news? And can we not just praise God for a moment that not one of us gets what we deserve? I don't get what I deserve. I just deserve eternal separation from a holy and just God. And yet he has brought Jesus into the world to save me from my sin and you as well, friend. Who's to blame? It doesn't matter. I can be so focused on who's to blame, I miss the one who came to fix the problem. And the sign is not about a blind man. The sign is about a savior who came to heal those who are blind. Anyone in here once blind? No? Anyone in here spiritually lost, separated from God, and yet he brought you near? If that's your story, then this is the story of every person. Who's to blame? Jesus says, it's not to focus on blame. Rather, notice what Jesus says. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, whenever we see a moment of brokenness, of blindness, a moment of struggle or suffering, it is a great place to be reminded that this is a place ready for God's grace. This is a place that is just asking for a good God to enter into it. Who's to blame? Stop. This is a moment for God to show up. Every person and problem you see who is hurting or hopeless is a moment to see this is a place ready for God's grace. How would it look if you and I focus more on how God may enter the brokenness than on the people who cause the brokenness? This is what the sign is all about. It's pointing to a God who is here to fix what is broken. And I just wondered how the world, how the church, how our own lives would look so much different if every time we saw a moment of brokenness, we focused on the one who could fix it. Now, please, don't misunderstand this text. It does not say that Jesus caused this, that God caused this, that he did all this so that there would be this moment where the man would be healed and everyone would be so happy about it. That's not what the text says. The text says 
that Jesus acknowledges that this moment was allowed to happen so that even in brokenness, great things can happen. Some of the worst moments of your life will become the first statement, the first sentence of your testimony. Because of what happened to me, God showed up in a powerful way. This is a place ready for God's grace. And so Jesus shows up and we say, yeah, this is a place for God's grace and it's a place for spit and mud. Uh That's right. Jesus does in this moment one of the strangest things, not only in the gospels, but in the whole Bible. Can you imagine From birth, you've been blind. You've gotten really good listening. You hear everything people say. You hear all the sounds because you have to. Otherwise, you're going to fall in a hole or you're going to have something happen to you. And so you're listening to this conversation around you. And the next thing you hear is... (coughs) How many of us are going to go like this? Like, no thank you. Now, the question is, why in the world did Jesus spit on the ground? And not only spit, he spat so much that he made enough mud... To cover the man's eyes. How much is that? Now, friends, that's gross. That's just nasty. Now, by the way, little boys, one of the most important moments is when you learn how to spit, isn't it? Come on. Older boys take you into the backyard. They teach you how to hawk a loogie. Sorry. They teach you the proper form to make sure that it gets out and not just go bloop because that's embarrassing. What a shame it is to be a young man and never learn how to spit. But do you know the very first rule you're taught after you learn how to spit? Don't. Right? You don't do it in front of your mama. Don't do it in front of other people. There are towns that have ordinances where you are not supposed to spit on the sidewalk. Did you know that? And in today's world of COVID, oh, just don't. You will do jail time if they see you spit, right? And so Jesus comes, he spits. Why? Two reasons. Number one, in their day and age, it was believed that spit had medicinal purposes. Now, we all know that's not necessarily the case. But is it possible that Jesus is helping link something in this man's mind to who he is and what he's about to do? I am the great healer. But it also reminds me of one other thing is Jesus is spitting and he's making mud. What other story does that remind you of? What other place in the Bible do we have a moment where God is playing in the dirt? Creation. Where God forms man from the dust of the ground. And now God incarnate is recreating this man's eyes. What was lost in the fall, Jesus brings back to us. And then he tells the man, now go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now go be baptized. Now go be cleansed. He goes. Some friend helps him down to the water, we assume. He gets there. And can you imagine that moment as he's rinsing the dirt and the mud from his eyes and he's blinking it out through his eyelashes. And there before him, for the first time ever, he sees these five little dangly things, his fingers and his hands, and he sees the water and he is healed. What a powerful moment. He goes back. Can you imagine? He wants to celebrate with his friends, but guess what? They don't recognize him. They're like, who are you? And I know we hear this. We're like, how in the world could they not know who this man is? They've only seen him every day for the past umpteen years. But it happens all the time, doesn't it? Sometimes you won't recognize someone simply because you see them in a different setting than you're used to, correct? So right now, where do we typically see one another? Church. Church. 
And then you roll into your gym one early morning, bleary-eyed, and you see someone and you're like, wait, you look familiar, but that's not what you usually wear. And you don't recognize each other, so they see this man, they're like, who are you? I'm the man. No, you're not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. And they go through this conversation, so finally they then pull in the religious leaders, and the religious leader's like, wait, are you the man? Yep. They're not really sure if he's really the man, so then they bring the parents, right? So, is this the man? Yeah. Was he born blind? Yeah. Well, he can see now. Not our fault. So they bring the man back. They say, are you really the man? He goes, yes, I am. What happened? He said, all I know is I once was blind, but now I see. And the thing that stood between my blindness and my sight was God's grace. And they get so mad at him because it happened on a holy day, on a Sabbath day, that they kick him out. And now he has nowhere to go. He is in this no man's land of being met by Jesus and having a community to belong to. Friends, do you know one of the hardest moments for your unchurched friends? It's when they go from walking in one way to coming to faith and now they've lost all their old friends. Their old friends don't even recognize them because grace changes you. And then their friends don't do what they do. They, they used to go certain places on Friday night. Now they can't go there. And here's the problem. So many of us are so connected to our own community of faith, we are not aware. We don't have eyes to see those who are new to the faith, new to the family of God, who need a community. The reason many people leave faith after a short season is because they had no one in the community who was a part of their new life. We need one another. And so this man has been kicked out, and Jesus, oh Jesus, when hearing that the man had been kicked out, Jesus goes to find the man. The man didn't go and find Jesus, did he? text doesn't say that he looked high and low for this man named Jesus. No, 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 no. The text says when Jesus heard that he had been kicked out, he went and found the man. I say this often, I'll say it again. Friends, the good news of the gospel is not that you found Jesus. The good news is that Jesus found you. That when you and I were lost, Jesus found us. I can't find Jesus. And even if I could, I couldn't pull myself up to him. But praise be to God. His grace found me. And his grace found you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, good news. His grace is available today. No matter where you are, lost and blind, Jesus comes to us. And he asks him the most important question. He says, do you believe? Every Sunday when someone comes to faith and when we see them baptized, we ask, do you believe that Jesus is more than a man, that he's the son of God, that he is the savior of the world, and he's the Lord of the universe, meaning he's boss? It's the most important question. And the man doesn't just say yes. He says, oh, I wish I could see this man. And our tender savior says, the one you're talking to is him. And the man does the only sensible thing when you have been met by God's grace. We're told in this beautiful verse, he worshiped. Now, when I say worship, here's my problem. Maybe it's yours as well. When I hear worship, I think singing. We're going to enter into a time of worship where you've just finished worship. Now we're going to do teaching. Now we're going to go into some more worship. Friends, worship is bigger than just the words that come out of our mouth in a melody. 
The word used there is not that he's saying to Jesus, although singing, can singing, by the way, the answer is yes, can singing be an act of worship, church? Absolutely, but that's not what this is. Do you want to know what this is? Let me show you. It's the Greek word, proskuneo. Everyone say proskuneo. It just means it's where we get our word for prostrate. And by the way, you got to be really careful how you say that word. Okay? Some of you will get that later. He falls prostrate, meaning down to the ground, face down, all of him. It's his way, and it's our way of saying, all that I am, all that I have is not mine. It's yours. Worship is not simply giving God an hour on Sunday to sing. It is Monday through Saturday saying, all that I have, all that I am, it is yours. Your grace gave me life. Now my life is yours. Jesus, what do you want to do with my time? It's yours. Jesus, what do you want to do with my money? It's yours. What do you want to do with my relationships and my sexuality and my influence? It's yours. What do you want to do with my work and my leisure? What do you want to do with everything? It is yours. The only sensible response to grace is worship. To say, all that I have is yours, Daddy. Jesus, you found me when I had nothing. I was a beggar, blind and unable to take care of myself. So you came and you gave me life. It's now yours. See, the beautiful gift, the sign here, is whenever you see brokenness, it is a place ready for God's grace. And the only sensible response to grace is worship. That when Jesus shows up, our hearts turn to him in worship. And so, when you get God's grace, when I get God's grace... When it goes from up here to down here, God will get our worship. And so it's a big question, isn't it? Tomorrow morning, does God get my worship? Tomorrow, during the most frustrating moments, maybe it's a conversation or a meeting, or maybe it's just a moment where you just feel frustrated, does God get your worship even then? When you're scared about finances, does God get your worship? When you have no time, does God get your worship? When relationships are hard, does God get your worship? Or when, even worse, when things are great and it's easy to forget God, does he still get your worship? The way you know you have gotten grace from your head to your heart is that grace will come out through worship. When we get God's grace, God gets our worship. See, this is not simply one sign. There's two signs here. The first is that every place of brokenness is a place ready for grace. And the sign that you've received grace is that God gets your worship. And so I want us to take a moment to talk to this good giver of grace. We're going to continue in some singing in a moment. We're going to take communion in a moment. These are acts of worship. They're a part of it. But the moment we're about to enter into right now, this is a moment of worship as well. So I'm going to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. I won't do anything to put you on the spot or embarrass you. You know me too well to do that. But I do know that some of you are just struggling this morning. You're struggling to make sense of this world. You're struggling to make sense of what you're going through. And although you're confident maybe Jesus can see the path forward, you can't see it. You just don't have eyes for it. So I want to invite you just for a moment to breathe in the grace of God and to talk to him. For some of us this morning, 
you're in that no man's land. You don't have a community. And so for you, maybe the simplest next step is you need to say, I want to be a part of the family here. We'll show you how. For others, you're just saying, I don't know what my next step is. We'd love to talk to you about that after our gathering today. For others in here, you need to tell God, Lord, I want to go from singing on Sunday to worship on Monday. All that I have is yours. And still for others, Jesus is asking you in this very moment, do you believe? Father, we thank you that you come to the blind and you give sight. We thank you that you now come to us. And whatever it is that we need, we thank you that you are the one who can give it. For those who need community, I ask you, give them the shot of courage to take that next step and be part of a family. Not a perfect one, because none in here on our own is perfect, but a family nonetheless. For those who have yet to experience whole life worship, I pray that you will show them that every moment of their life is a moment to worship. May tomorrow morning be just as celebratory as this hour is. And for some, Father, who have yet to say yes to you in baptism, to say, yes, I want to follow you in every way, would you speak to them now? As you did to the blind man on the road, would you come to us now? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.